he says it's a and he was joking he was being um kind of i guess you could say playful with the statement but he said it's okay that you don't believe god's all-powerful and for several reasons i didn't respond with this not that i think he would have handled it poorly but um what I almost said was, and it's okay that you don't think God has self-control. Welcome to the Belfast Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Byler, and we are starting our new series. I teased this a week and a half, two weeks ago. We put out a, a little promotional video for it. And it's here. It's finally here. This is our introductory uh, few episodes. Uh, Daniel and I are going through the question, what is the gospel? Uh, we focus on the euangelion, the historicity of that word, how it was used in the ancient times, how the gospel writers steal this word and use it for their own means in the euangelion of Jesus Christ. And... In this episode, that's really what we get into. We introduce you know, more of where we're going with this thing, what our goals are, and we talk about this term a little bit. Uh, next week, we're going to react to some popular preachers and how they talk about the gospel. And throughout these episodes, we are going to use a sermon by Sky Jitani titled, What is the Gospel?, and so I will link that down below. It's a great sermon. You can listen to its entirety if you want to. We don't listen to all of it. We listen to most of it. And we react to that. And that's kind of our, our guiding force in these discussions here. And so that's where we're going for the next few weeks. As always, I really hope you guys are enjoying this. I hope it brings a lot to you. I hope it helps you think about things differently. I hope that at the end, this series will give me, and it will give you a much better sense of what the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is. Here we've been in this podcast for the past number of months, since the winter, basically, um, has been conversations about, it really started with a conversation about literature about views of literature, about intertextuality, about how these realities across forms, be it film, be it music, be it literature at large, all affect and all are present in the Bible and need to inform how we read the Bible if we're going to read it well and with integrity. We spent a long time talking about all those realities. We have now spent considerable time discussing the literary form of the Bible, be it the canon, and how the canon came to be. We reacted to some conversations, or we reacted to some talks from Tim Mackey about the canonization of the New Testament, canonization of the Old Testament. We've had conversations about canonization as such, canonization happening within even our own culture canonization of comics, canonization of film and TV, Star Wars, which that canon has a broad spectrum. Um, 
something that I brought up the other day to you on the phone was there's a YouTuber I like to follow, Young Ripper 59, I think is what he calls himself. Um, but he has he does a lot of commentary on comic books, Marvel, DC, um, Disney shows, obviously, because Disney owns Marvel now. But he has a show, a, a daily show. His show is literally called For Canon's Sake, and he is a comic book guy. So that whole conversation we had about Canons and Batman and Star Wars, it all happens the same way. It just seems to bubble up from the community. What is important? What is authoritative? What is most useful? What is most truthful? Usually gets a large consensus from that believing community. And like I said then, if the Spirit is truly guiding those who wrote the Bible, if the Spirit is truly guiding those who compiled the books of the Bible, how would we then not extend that same spirit to the communities that canonize the bible so we've had some conversation about canon then we had some conversation about how this view how the canonization works in terms of typology in terms of prophecy and how the two can speak to one another as a unification using even jesus's words about the canon about the purpose the Christotelos view that Pete Enns talked about of Christ being the end and reading that into different books of the Bible and different stories in the Bible. Um, again, as we've talked about with Walton here, which I may or may not post, um, how context for certain things matters um, in our exegesis, but we can't wholesale our interpretations Cross forms as we've just seen. Um, so we've had, again, a lot of discussion about literature, about truth, about lenses, about reality, about the Bible, about its formation, about how it conveys these truths. And now we're going to turn to a specific proclamation of truth in the Bible, the good news, the gospel. And there are there are many ways in which we have thought about trying to discuss this contentious and very broad topic. Now, as we said before, we try and pull from a lot of different sources and a lot of different people to come up with things that we talk about to make it uh, worthwhile and educational for you guys. And so we're going to do a series. I don't know how long it's exactly going to be. It's still in progress. Although we have the first five or six episodes planned out pretty fully now. But we're going to go through and we're going to investigate. What is the gospel? What are different ways in which the gospel is talked about? What are different ways in which the gospel is framed in our current world, in our time, and in our place? And is that really what the gospel, the good news, is in terms of how the Bible portrays it. What do these similarities and differences mean for us as Christians and in our world? And the major way we're going to do this is do this through certain works of literature. We're going to do this through certain pastors, through certain theologians. So we're doing a book study, and I'll just roll them out to you guys now just so we'll be upfront about this 
and you can read along and plan on making another video, more a specific announcement video about this as well. But um, today we're going to do an introductory episode focused on the phrase euangelion, the good news, which is not a phrase unique to the Bible itself. What does that mean? How does the Bible use it? How does it impact how we view literally where we get our word gospel from? Then we're going to move on to going through the book, The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. I've referenced it a number of times. Today, I'm going to read portions from a book I'm reading kind of as a side project with this. Um, Simply Good News by N.T. Wright, uh, Why the Gospel is News, What Makes It Good. Another joint book me and Dan are going to study together are, is another book by N.T. Wright called How God Became King. That is going to flow very well from uh, Willard and then the other right book I'm reading. Uh, I, we're, I'm going to do more of the reading from this, although Daniel might join me in some of it. We're going to go through a book by Scott McKnight called The King Jesus Gospel. Uh, I may or may not read Reversing Hermon by Michael Heiser um, for some of this. And then at some point we plan on going through Unseen Realm, also by Heiser. So it's obvious we have some favorites, as I said, N.T. Wright being one of them. So that's no secret. Here. I've never tried to make it a secret, very upfront about that. Uh, and as you can tell, we have some core themes here, Jesus being king, the gospel, good news. What does this mean? What is the divine conspiracy that God seems to be up to? All these are questions we hope to address and answer within this series. And so if you ever wondered if you've ever questioned you know i hear and now every time since we've ever decided to do this series every time i hear somebody talk about you know we are a gospel-centered church well i just get up there and i preach the gospel i and we're going to hear some of that today i always think what do you mean by that because everyone has their flavor, their bent, their emphases, if you will, on what the gospel is. And hopefully a lot of those coalesce to make it a coherent and legitimate and also, let's say, traditional in the true sense, gospel. Um, but we also know a lot of ways in which the gospel has been distorted and used in very bad ways, and truncated and used in ways that aren't full, let's say. Uh, I did episodes two summers ago with Alex, old friend of mine. Hope you're listening, man. Um, we had a conversation about the fundamentalist version of the gospel, which we will talk about here some today and later as well. Uh, so that was kind of, if, if you're curious what this series is going to sound like, probably something like that episode, different versions of those kinds of things. But we're going to specifically focus on these books, on these certain authors, what they're bringing to the table, how they talk about Jesus being king, how they talk about the gospel as good news, and how that shapes our function and role as Christians in society, as Christians in the church. And so hopefully that's clear as mud on what we're going to be doing for the next few months here. Um, but again, if you ever had questions about, I mean, what do you mean when you say the gospel? Because I've heard it preached, but I've never, people say different things about it. So what do we really mean when we say uh, 
the gospel, the good news. Or here's what it means to accept Christ. Here's the implications that should have in your life. And stick around because we're going to try and answer those questions. Do you have anything to say as far as introduction goes to this endeavor? Yeah, yeah. So um, this whole, just for like full transparency, this whole thing came about because even before I stole your idea. I offered you my idea, I guess we will say. Um, I'm great at that. I'm great at just stealing great ideas from people. Well, so I was in the airport leaving Christmas with family. I haven't heard texting you. Uh, well, I would, we were texting <laughs> and we were waiting on the airplane. Spirit Airlines um, delayed our flight by two hours. And so surprise, surprise. Yeah, I know. Right. It's what you get for flying spirit. Um, they will never sponsor us, but <laughs> um, so anyway. On this episode of the podcast sponsored by United. <laughs> So um, I was sitting in the airport and we were texting back and forth about just things that I was planning on studying. This was before I was the official co-host in that like unofficial co-host range. And we had just started recording episodes again or talking about recording episodes again, actually. Yeah, because we had both had a busy end of the semester, I'm assuming. And yeah, yeah, because this was Christmas, right? Yeah. And so this is actually before we did our entire previous study, but I told you this summer, I'm planning on reading several works. One, you recommended Divine Conspiracy, and I think actually uh, How God Became King too. And I think I said you need to read them both together. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what you said. And I'm planning on doing a study on the gospel because a lot of people are throwing a lot of things around, but I want to, I, I have some ideas about what I think, but I really want to nail down what I think, why I think it, and be able to point to people as sources and say, okay, I'm, I'm not just pulling this out of nowhere. And you said something along the lines of, we should do that on the podcast. And so this entire, I guess, last six months now have been building up actually to this, this thing. We've been trying to get everyone ready for this. Um, and this is trying to get everyone ready for something else, I'm sure at some point. But this has been something that I think we've both been looking forward to hinting plans within at plans, if you will. Yeah, yeah. But we've been hinting at this for a while. And in some subtle and in some not so subtle ways. And we've been building to this. Mm-hmm. So because um, we think it's important to understand how the Bible functions. Yeah, how the context of the Bible matters. Yeah when and where you can use certain ways to interpret the Bible, how uh, I think especially our conversation about typology, yes. prefigurement is very yes. important in this conversation. Yes. Uh, how literature I'm, works, literature being a lens. Um, we'll be coming I'll, back to all of that. Yes. And we'll be using those conversations as base assumptions mm-hmm. throughout so if you haven't watched those, if you haven't listened to those, go back and do at your own pace. I need to make time. a playlist for the literature conversations because those are yeah. some of my favorite that we've done. Yeah. And I need the, I want those accessible in like a, a manner of which, oh, this episode follows this episode follows this episode because yeah. they aren't technically clear yeah. as how I posted them originally, yeah. which is fine. So audience, if Luke doesn't do that, 
because I don't have access to the YouTube Tell me. stuff. Make a comment. Comments, Where's the playlist? And then, and Email me. Get on him. So um, anyway, yeah, that's that's a great idea. But another thing you mentioned was we're going to be sifting through different presentations of the gospel. And we're going to do that in part today and in part in a couple of episodes. And I think it's, well, and I guess next episode too, we'll be spending some time talking about different presentations of the gospel and how these filter into what we see as the fullest presentation of the gospel, mm -hmm. which ironically ends up encompassing a lot of the other fragmented presentations. So um, with that being said, should we get into it? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, let me. If you're going to start anywhere with the, let's put, let me put it this way. If you're going to start anywhere with the gospel, what do you mean when you say that? What do you mean when you say that word, gospel? What does it mean? Are you going to read from your textbook or are we just going to go to this? I think the textbook thing is it's previous conversation stuff. Cool. Okay. Um, and so it's, we've already summed it up a million times. I think it's fine. To okay. It right. It was so just John for... Piper affirming something that we've said over and over again. So for introduction to who this is on the screen, uh, if you guys don't know, because I don't think I've mentioned him. By the way, Daniel, <laughs> prefigurement here, foreshadow. If we're going to have a discussion about eschatology at some point, it's going to be, it'd have to be a multiple episode one. Yeah. But okay. he has a great series okay. on some, he simplifies them a little bit, but eschatological frames. Mm -hmm. and how they impact how we view the world, what our purpose is in the world. This is the guy you're talking about. Okay. Cool. What? Yeah, You've mentioned this before. I just didn't realize it was the same guy okay. we're using so, today. Um, his name is Sky Jatani. And Sky, if I got that wrong, please don't beat me up. Um, but uh, I like Sky a lot. Yeah, I followed him for years. Uh, he was on the, when it was called the Phil Vischer podcast, he was a podcast with a guy that made uh, Veggie Tales. Now it is called the Holy Post. Um, this guy's a pretty funny dude. Uh, he's, he's quite humorous. Um, yeah. Not in the sermon, but on podcasts. You can, he has some jabs that are just, just real good. He also does a, this will show you how deep I am down that rabbit hole. He also does another, another podcast called the movie proposal that I think is great. Uh, where he goes through movies that have been released with another friend of his. Uh, but the Holy Post talks a lot about current cultural happenings and some Christian dissection of those events. Whether you agree or disagree with them uh, is up to you. And matter of fact, I disagree with Phil and Sky on a number of occasions. Um, but nonetheless, I think what they have to bring to the table is usually fairly thoughtful and um, bipartisan to use a awfully cliched phrase um that i don't know how true it really is in our in our world um but yeah he he has been a pastor for a long time kind of has transitioned out of full-time pastoral work um he's done he's written a lot of books um more, much more for a popular audience but a lot of them have to do with the how we view our relationship with God, 
research it. And I think it's great work. I'd probably recommend any book he's written so far. So um, that being said, this is Sky Jitani. Um, I also relate to him pretty heavily because he is a third culture kid. He um, grew up traveling a lot. His parents are, I forget where they're specifically from, um, but he, he grew up in the U.S. and overseas. And so uh, I've heard him in some talks say that uh, his mom always accused him of uh, of of being guilty that he had to be perpetually unique, which I can relate to. So, so that is Sky Jatani. We are going to hear his sermon preached at a church he helped pastor, and the name of the sermon is "What Is the Gospel." He kicks off their series, their fall series on on that question, what is the gospel? So we're not the only ones or the first ones to ever tackle or try to tackle this question. Ready? Because mm-hmm. frankly, over 2000 years of church history, it's changed its clothes so many times, or we've changed it ourselves so many times that we don't recognize it anymore. Now I realize that today there could probably be at least three different categories of people here. One category might be somebody who is fairly new to the church or new to the Christian community, doesn't know a lot about Christianity or the Bible, and might be thinking, great, what is the Bible? I'm curious myself. I've heard the word thrown around a lot. I'd like to get it straight up. What is the gospel? If you're that person this morning, great. I'm glad you're here. The other possibility is you're somebody who's been in the church a long time, perhaps your whole life. You feel like you've heard the gospel thousands of times. We don't need to cover this ground again. This is sort of Christianity 101. Can't we please move on to some deeper, more meaty theology? And if that's you, I'm really glad you're here this morning because chances are you may not have heard the gospel clearly and succinctly from Scripture. You may think you have, but that's a whole other issue which we'll get into in a little bit. The third category of persons might be somebody who's a particularly sick individual who really likes to study theology and doctrine. I fit into this category. And if you are here this morning, you know that this question of what is the gospel has become a highly contentious and debated question within the church, including within evangelical churches. Um, Fights break out over this question. Denominations split over this question. Churches break up over this question. Pastors refuse to talk to one another over this question. Uh, networks and conferences are designed around this question and making sure you answer it the same way I do, and if you don't, then you're not allowed. So it's become pretty tumultuous. And part of the reason for it is the one thing that we all agree on is that the gospel is the foundation of the Christian faith. Therefore, however you define the gospel ends up defining all of Christianity. Your understanding of the gospel is going to... That's why we want to take some months to do this. So you can, I was going to say, you can just rewind it real quick and oh. repeat it, but yeah. but yeah, how, how you define it is going to affect how you define a lot of other things in your Christian faith. So go ahead. This question, denominations split over this question, churches break up over this question, pastors refuse to talk to one another over this question. Uh, networks and conferences are designed around this question and making sure that you answer it the same way I do, and if you don't, then you're not allowed. So it's become pretty tumultuous. And part of the reason for it is the one thing that we all agree on is that the gospel 
is the foundation of the Christian faith. Therefore, however you define the gospel ends up defining all of Christianity. You're yeah, I think that's worth, definitely worth stopping on. Um, the gospel is central to our faith and the definition of it informs the way we define other things. And because it's so central, I mean, going back to uh, Peterson's paradigm of what is canon, right? It's books that have influenced other books. Well, what is central conceptually to a religious framework? It's principles that inform other principles. Mm -hmm. And the principle of gospel informs everything else, everything else. And the, he talked for, I think we just got the end of his statement towards the beginning of this on how, um, how the gospel has changed clothes throughout the history of Christianity. And I don't know if it's going to be in the timestamps you referenced, but later he talks about how um, a lot of the things that have happened in the Christian movement are we have, we've had several things happen that have required reformation or change throughout Christian history. And every single one of those movements, usually they do good things and emphasize good things. But what ends up happening is they take those good things that they are emphasizing and they make those central to the gospel mm -hmm. instead of letting those be informed by what the gospel actually is. Mm -hmm. And that is very important to understand because I think we sit at a cultural moment right now within Christianity and even outside of Christianity where a gospel has been proclaimed for so long, but that gospel actually isn't the right gospel. You have anything to add? No, that's good. Your understanding of the gospel is going to determine what you believe the purpose of your life is as a Christian. It's going to define what you believe the purpose of the church is. It's going to define what you believe your mission is. It all hinges on this question. And so defining it has become really, really important and really contentious. Now, the other side of it is that there's a little bit of an irony going on. And that is Christianity has been around for 2,000 years. And if we all agree that the foundation of Christianity is the gospel and the, the church has been around for 2,000 years, then why is the gospel so hard to figure out? Well, it's exactly because it's been around for 2,000 years that it's hard to figure out. Here's what happens. In different times and different places throughout history, false teachings have emerged. And over time, someone realizes that's a bad teaching that is out of conformity with Christ or out of conformity with the scriptures. And then they bring correction to that false teaching. And very often what they'll do is they'll take the correction, which may well be true and good and biblical, and they'll call that correction the gospel because it's good and it's right and we're correcting this error over here, therefore this is the gospel. And then over time some other error will emerge and someone else will come back and correct it and they'll call that correction the gospel. And over time what we do, kind of like that tourist in Iceland, is we freshen up the gospel so many times in order to correct one error or another, one bad teaching or another, that over time we get so committed to our particular version of the gospel that we've forgotten what the gospel actually is because we've dressed it up in some kind of cultural or um, reactionary guise in response to some bad teaching that's gone on. So 
over 2,000 years of that, it can get pretty convoluted and messy. Now, we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. And I. So that's what I was just saying, right? That over time, we've allowed, um, you could say, almost like barnacles on a ship, these dressing ups of the gospel, these corrections, valid, very necessary, good corrections to bad teaching build up. And we've started pointing at those and saying, that's gospel, instead of letting those be informed by what is the gospel. And, and I think that's, that's a really, really big problem. Uh, I think we're towards the end of this timestamp. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can, you we can go ahead now. Um, something that I would say that is interesting to think about in terms of that point, and I think it's right. When the Council of Nicaea comes together, they're fighting a heresy, a heresy about the Holy Spirit, right? Or about Jesus, right? The Holy Spirit came later because of something that's said in the Nicene Creed, or partially at least. Um, what about the nature of Jesus, his human and divine? What does the Council of Nicaea make? as their declaration at the end of the council. Well, it's something that we quote at my church every week, the Nicene Creed. But the Nicene Creed, while it has elements that particularly poke their polemic towards the idea that there was a time when the sun was not the Arian heresy, it is a declaration of the biblical story and the Christian faith in full, for the most part. Like, it's a very succinct way to summarize the biblical story, the hope of the Christian and the reign of Christ. It wasn't just a 20-page document on, here's why Jesus is co-eternal with the Father. It's done in three lines in the, in the Nicene Creed. So my point is, maybe we used to be way better at this, at pointing out theological heresy, true heresy, or, you know, disputes, but not making that the centrality of the discussion then, or even what is proclaimed out, out of that uh, decision. And I would say that the nature of Christ is pretty central to the gospel. So, um, but you, you get what I'm saying, I think. Oh, absolutely. The, um, so yesterday for my, um, at this point, I'll just call it my job. I've been, um, it was previously my internship. I, we had this staff growth session. We try to have one a week and we listened to this podcast um, that was all about productivity by subtraction. And there was this engineer, and I can't remember where he teaches. And maybe I'll have to find it and send it to you. It was kind of interesting. Um, but he really, he talks about how we don't think of subtraction as being a viable answer to solving problems most of the time. We always think of addition. So add something on to the project. Add... Um, an extra foot to the height of this pillar, 
instead of taking two feet off to make things line up, um, things like that. And he said, sometimes the subtraction is not the correct answer, but far more often than we think, subtraction actually helps things be simpler. And then he uses a bunch of different examples for this and how it can help, like taking things out of your life can help you be more productive, you know, kind of a self-help kind of thing. But he also talks about how institutions tend to build on each other and build up to the point where you have a ton of redundancies or outdated models, things like this. He talks about law a lot. And as an example of this, how we have a lot of laws that are outdated and um, there are certain states within the US that are now requiring people who bring a new proposal to also propose two laws to strike from the books. And that kind of be a balance. That way the law doesn't build up to this point where it's critically overloaded. And I think we're already past that point personally. Um, I think our systems are critically overloaded. But I also think that Christian theology has in some ways gotten to that point. We started with a gospel and we've continuously tried to add on to it or rework it in order to work in our specific situations. But then we've conflated those additions with the gospel itself. And I mean, you see this with Council of Nicaea a little bit, but I think your point is still stands that they did a very good job of trying to fight that heresy without making non-central things central. You see this within later church controversies. You see this at the Reformation. You see this um, maybe more contemporarily or more relevant, at least to our contemporary context, with um, the young earth creationists versus theistic evolutionists and um, this whole dynamic here. It, and it's really interesting how we, we take non-central and honestly sometimes not even very well fleshed out ideas and we flesh them out and then make them central. And I think that does a lot of damage to Christianity as a whole. Any additions before we? No, you can keep going. One of the things that I found was an article in a, in a Christian magazine, not Christianity Today, I just want to make this clear. He used to write for them. In which they asked gotcha. Christian That's leaders why. from across the spectrum, different streams of the church, to define the gospel in seven words or less. And I want to show you some of those responses. And I've kept the names of the various Christian leaders off of the slide to protect the guilty and or the innocent. Um, oh, I got to turn this on, don't I? There it is. Okay, so here's the gospel in seven words or less, according to various Christian leaders. God is love. This is no joke. Kind of cheeky. Uh, to dwell in possibility. This is sort of the Deepak Chopra version of Christianity. God refuses to be God without us. It's very inclusive. Everybody gets to grow and change. I call this the Sesame Street gospel. <laughs> God, through Jesus Christ, welcomes you anyhow. I'm curious to know what the anyhow is, but Christ's humanity occasions our divinity. It's very zenish. In Christ, God's yes defeats our no. 
this does not apply in my home where my yes doesn't defeat anybody's no. Divinely persistent, God really loves us. God was born, we can be reborn. The wall of hostility has come down. We live by grace. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now many of these... I'm going to back it up because I think these take... I think we should take a second here just to mm -hmm. look at these. Because mm -hmm. um, in a little bit, we're going to go through several videos of more conservative-leaning people explaining the gospel. But I think these tend to be more liberal definitions. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think this, this could be a good exercise. You have any comments to make first? Um, no, not necessarily. If you have anything off the bat, you can go first. Okay. Well, I just think that for starters, um, let's just keep these in mind as we are looking at the more conservative responses later. Um, Cause I think these two will form two ends of a spectrum that exist that um, are, are really interesting to think about and think about why they developed that way and how they came out of the gospel that exists. And over the next few episodes, we'll get into that probably a little bit more. But um, so God is love. This is no joke. I think it's interesting they added this is no joke. Uh, I feel like with four words I could have done a little bit more to flesh out the definition and I would agree God is love but here's the question is is that the gospel to dwell in possibility I honestly have no idea where that comes from scripturally do you It sounds nice, and I think that there's potentially something there philosophically and maybe even biblically, but how that's linked to the gospel, I, I don't know. God refuses to be God without us. It's like the anti-Piper gospel. Exactly. And so it's, it's definitely... It definitely reads, at least within this presentation, as a more universalistic uh -huh. gospel. Um, it doesn't necessarily refuses have to be is such a, is an interesting word mm -hmm. to choose because I think God can be God without us. I don't think yeah. the line, well, God doesn't need us. All right. Well, I mean, even if you take the, oh, what's his name? The Richard Rohr side of things, universal Christ uh, view, like a much more cosmic or and or universal view of Jesus. A quote from him, which I love, is God shows what he loves by becoming it. But I still don't, and being human in the incarnation, right? 
but I still don't think that means he refuses to be God without us, even in that frame. So I would say God loved us so much he became one of us. That's maybe a better way to say it, but God refuses, refuses. That's, I don't know, man. It's a bit firm. Everybody it's gets also, to- it's also cool. You've said God twice in this sentence, but what's really in view is we're the most important thing. Yeah. Same thing with the next quote. Everybody gets to grow and change. Yeah. Change and grow into what is my question. Well, and if you think about it, those two, and really the, the four statements that we've read, maybe not so much the first, but the to dwell in possibility, God refuses to be God without us, and everybody gets to grow and change. They're very nonspecific, which granted, you have seven words or less, okay, and um, Sky's definition also needs some further explaining besides the words that he uses right? Because he does the same thing with the same word count. But these things are so nonspecific and they sound to me like motivational speech quotes mm-hmm. more than they sound like something the Bible is positing. It just, it's the gospel adapted to self-help god through jesus christ welcomes you anyhow that word anyhow kind of stands out yeah like like sky said i wonder what the anyhow is despite what and anyhow um despite my sin despite the fact that i'm not God. Again, they had a word count, and I understand that. And if they were giving these in longer form, it'd be more fleshed out. But I think there's a vagueness here that's interesting and a little slippery. This one feels super new age. Christ's humanity occasions our divinity. Again, you are the focus. Mm-hmm. It's all individualistic. It's all self-centered. It's, I guess, the gospel in our time. But In Christ, God's yes defeats our no. Yes to what and no to what? Again, word count, but. Yes to what, no to what. And are you saying that God's not going to. Ever say no. Ever say no. Or that God is not going to ever stop when I say no. I mean, I'm thinking of a Bill Burr skit here. No means no. I. And. I don't know, maybe the, the rape analogy for universalism is a bit too intense, but at the same time, 
and for those of you who didn't don't fully understand what I just said, there are some people who would say, well, universalism is basically forcing God upon you and denying your agency as analogous to reject reject him. Yeah. Um, And so even if you desire to reject him, you are either manipulated into accepting him or forced into accepting him and how that can kind of be analogous to the way we talk about rape within the modern world. Um, And I say all of that not to discount the severity of rape, but that that's just an analogy that gets used for people who are arguing against universalism. Um, Again, with this next one, divinely persistent. God, God really loves us. I'm thinking of the Lewis quote from Screwtape. How God cannot overcome our sensibilities. Um, uh, Screwtape says he can only tempt to virtue as we do to vice. So again, how, I, I again, you could say, well, the cross is a pretty persistent message of I love you. Yes. Yes, defeats are no. In what way? Divinely persistent, God really loves us. Yeah. Does that mean God's so persistent that he overrides our wishes? So I had a Presbyterian pastor um, say to me recently because I mentioned to him that I um, believe in free will and not some like double predestination. Um, And, you know, like that whole theological vein, very reformed Mm -hmm. um, theology that I was discounting God's power. He says it's a, and he was joking. He was being um, kind of, I guess you could say playful with the statement, but he said, it's okay that you don't believe God's all powerful. And for several reasons, I didn't respond with this. Not that I think he would have handled it poorly, but um, what I almost said was, and it's okay that you don't think God has (laughs) self-control. Because just to say God's all powerful does not mean he's forceful. Yeah. It does not mean that just because God can do it, God will do it. It's like, can we say God has integrated his shadow? Exactly. Exactly. You should exactly become what a I'm monster and then learn how to control it. Yeah. And if, if you might need, there's, in, there's like we've talked about before, a long time ago, there's instances where you might need to be a monster. You might need to be a monster to protect somebody. Yeah. More vulnerable than you. And I don't you might need say to be every... a monster to protect somebody from bigger monsters. But that doesn't mean in every instance you're a monster. Yeah. Well, that means and, you know when to do it. And differ, differentiating between those two things and having the self-control to act upon that differentiation, I think is key to the fruit of the spirit. And I have a lot more to say on this 
we'll get into that with Willard at some point um, in the in the future. But I'll just say the statement here because I think it's so true and so powerful. And I think it's good for me to say it multiple times throughout our study that I think love is the Christian goal and self-control is the means to attain that goal. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is we are called first to love God and love neighbor as self. That's what we aim at. That's our target. Because in doing so, we're being like God. But the only way we can fully achieve that is through self-control. That's it. I'll, uh, Bama episode two. Yep. No one to say enough. No one to say enough. So God apparently does have self-control because he stops creating. Yeah. Anyway. Um, God was, yeah. So God has self-control. To what extent is that? Right. How much does he force himself upon us? Right. These are yeah. all questions within some of these frames. Divinely persistent. Yes, defeating or no. While I would agree that those are true, to what extent do these things present themselves as reality? I don't know. Uh, God was born. We can be reborn. I would say God was, I would say Jesus was resurrected. So can we. That's how I would put it. But yeah, no, I totally agree. I think, I think we don't focus in certain frames of the gospel, and we'll probably get to this in a second when we're looking at more conservative leanings, um, we don't focus enough on the incarnation. And I think this focuses a lot on the incarnation, but I think this doesn't focus on the life, death, burial, and resurrection, which are all the other beats in the story that I think have to be included for the gospel to be holistically understood. Mm-hmm. And again, notice we haven't necessarily defined the gospel yet, at least as, as we are. We're kind of hitting all around it. But that's because we want to point this out first. It's important to see the gospels that have been presented. Mm -hmm. So the wall of hostility has come down. You had called this the Berlin gospel. I was just about to say that. It's it's a historical moment. It's a, which I think the gospel does. And if this isn't what the author is referencing, then I don't know what they are. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the, the wall of hostility has come down. Something has happened, which I think something has happened in the gospel. And that thing that has happened has brought hostility potentially to an end. Good. But what's the thing that happened and how does it accomplish that goal? Here's a good way to think about it, which we will get to this today and later. Especially with the biblical languages episode we're going to do, which I'm really excited for. Um, all of these have to do with some kind of effect. Mm -hmm. I think they're all, at some degree, right they all talk about effects of the gospel, but they aren't gospel. 
We live by grace. Yes, we do. But is that the good news? Or is that an effect of the good news? I'm priming you with these questions so we can think about it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, okay, they're taking Jesus' greatest commandment. What is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord. We talked about this the other day, Deuteronomy. Yeah. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then Jesus says, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On this, the whole law hinges. But is that the gospel? Or is that the kind of life of someone who accepts the gospel? Is that the cause or is that the effect? And a few things on this. I say that before bed with my wife every night. I, I say the, Marty Solomon calls it the Jesus Shema. I say it in Hebrew and, and in English because I think Scott it's a Scott calls it the Jesus Creed. He wrote a book about it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think the, one of the reasons why I've made that conscious decision that we say it every night is that I want us to live by those words. Mm-hmm. It's a spiritual practice. It's a discipline. It's a discipline. That doesn't mean that I think it's the gospel. Okay, because there's a difference between the gospel producing something in me and something being the gospel. And what's a common theme throughout all of these that this one also hits on? Love. Love, but also the centrality of people. Yeah. This was the second greatest commandment. This, was, this didn't even make Jesus number one. So what makes us think that this is paramount? You've yet again, you've done the, as Marty Solomon would say, well, I'm referencing him a lot today, um, in, within the Hellenistic framework, you've made man the measure of all things. I think all of these gospels have made man the measure of all things. They're using man as the measurement of God. And that I think is a big problem. A big problem. So I rest my case there. Do you have anything to add? No. So should we listen to him a little bit longer or no, we can, we can okay. move. We can I, let him, let him say his piece with these. Yeah. Uh, it's like 30 more seconds or something, but okay. yeah. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, many of these, perhaps even all of them you can say are rooted in scripture. They're all under seven words or are seven words. They're all good things, but I don't believe any one of these is the gospel. The fact that these are Christian leaders from throughout America, recognizable Christian leaders, should tell you something about how convoluted and contentious this question has become. That we can't even, my hunch is that if we were to survey all of you about what is the gospel, we'd probably find a great deal of diversity in what you would say. Many of the things you would say would probably be good, biblical, important things. But would they be the gospel? When I was a kid, I was told this is the gospel. 
This is about right, as close as Evan. Oh, sorry. Go back. This is a good joke. Okay. Biblical important things, but would they be the gospel? When I was a kid, I was told this is the gospel. This is about as close as evangelicals come to rosary. Right? <laughs> and then I got to college yeah. and I was told this is the gospel. That God has a wonderful plan for my life and then, you know, the rest of it. We'll get back to that a- much later that four yeah. spirituals will come up. Um, I mean, like months from now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> much, much later. Yeah. So. These are ways in very popular pastors spoke about the gospel in the response to this survey. Uh, I just went on YouTube yesterday to get some more positions just to show, again, how are people talking about the gospel? How are major leaders in evangelicalism speaking about the gospel and what are people splicing on YouTube as so and so gives the gospel in four minutes, so and so speaks the truth that everyone needs to hear, on and on and on it goes. You can find a whole slew of these videos. Um, I think the first one we're going to do is John Piper, the gospel in three minutes. And this is a video, I believe, from the Gospel Coalition, if I remember right. Um, We'll get back to the Gospel Coalition, I think, next week a little bit. We might not play that clip, I don't know. But uh-huh. the thing we're going to use next week references Gospel Coalition, too. So if we get to that point oh, yeah, 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 in the yeah, next yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, video, think about how this is analogous to that. Um, but before we get to those real quick, because I already have one of them pulled up, but okay. I wanted to say one more thing, because I think there's one aspect of a left-leaning gospel that was left off of that list maybe a couple of aspects. Um, I think we'll get to in a few weeks. Yeah. Um, but I think it bears representing here too, because we're doing this juxtaposition, the concept of social reform mm-hmm. and eschatological utopianism, mm-hmm. this idea of bringing the eschatological, eschatological age into reality now Bringing the kingdom, bringing the kingdom, and how now. we do government, and how we treat people, yes. and how we do immigration, right? Yes. Um, race how relations, we treat the environment, race relations, economy, reconciliation, right? Yeah, all of it. Um, and I don't think that that's a bad thing, but again, I don't think that that's. I think all those are consequences of the gospel. Yeah. There are markers of a Christian community even. Right? Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. What What is the big fight? Can these heathens, these Gentiles be part of our community? Do they have to get circumcised? Do they have to take the sign of the covenant? Can these Gentiles stay Gentiles and be part of Christian community? Mm-hmm. Do they have to forego all their cultural trappings? Do they have to uh, denounce their ethnicity, their history? 
right? These are all questions that are that are asked in the first century about, about the Christian communities that are springing up because it is no longer bound to a nation. It is no longer bound to a people group. So of course, of course, we're going to have strife over who is in and who is out based on things like ethnicity, nationalization, background, all of this stuff, of course. And the marker of the community was we're all under Christ. So those differences don't matter anymore because they're real they're real and they exist but the primary function is that we exist as a community under christ so to piper yes i all, all i'm saying and using that example is we're having the same fights now Yep. So yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, yeah, which are well worth having. I mean, let's air them out. Yeah. Um, but again, that was a a direct consequence of the gospel was this radical inclusion of people that had not been included in the covenant before. And I use those words specifically, but again, that inclusiveness is not the gospel it is because of the gospel that you get that radical kind of inclusion and the breaking down of barriers the wall of hostility coming down again i think this is something we'll hit again and it's going to be a phrase that i say over and over and over again it might end up on a t-shirt one day just like how i kept using the anti-right phrase Selection and arrangement. There is no other way to write. We confuse again and again and again consequences of the gospel with the gospel itself. Consequences of the gospel should be radical reconciliation, should be inclusion of people. As much as I cringe at using that word itself because it means so many things that I don't want it to mean, like it denotes so much that I don't want it to be. And not to say there aren't standards of Christianity, A, let's just make that clear. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but all these things are consequences of, the, of what Jesus did and what the gospel is. Yeah. But they are, let's never get it twisted. That is not the gospel. Yeah. It produces this kind of thing. It produces this kind of person these kinds of people, this kind of community that is centered on Christ. And when it is not centered on Christ, when the community, this is, again, we could go, we could do side quests about like Peugeot's talk of when inclusion becomes the central figure, you're yeah. in trouble because you are centered around something that really has no boundary. So you're everywhere. Right? The center for Christianity is not inclusion. It is not even, well, in some sense, I guess it is reconciliation in the true sense. Um, but it is not a certain economic structure. It is not conservatism. It is not, 
you know, sexual ethic, as much as all those are part of the consequence of the gospel of who Jesus is and who he makes us to be, those things are not the gospel, not your own forgiveness, not the forgiveness of the community, not your ascent into heaven. It is not the gospel. Those are all consequences of the gospel. And here's the thing, and I, I'll, this is my last point, and then we can move on to Piper. This you got me fired for, up now, too. So this is go. foreshadowing, but I've said this before, and I'll say it again. to the point of centered around Christ and why I say this thing being centered around those who are Christians are centered around this sexual act. Those who are Christians are centered around this economic structure. Those who are Christians are centered around this political party. Those who are Christians are centered around voting so-and-so into office or so-and-so out of office or so-and-so getting overturned or not it being the day that it is right in America. Um, those that are Christians are standing for, you know, the, the, Pro-life, and I'm all for these things, right? You know, standing on our convictions of what the Christian community should produce, we should stand by those. But when you make those this the thing that you orbit around, you have confused the fruit for the spirit. Right. Um I forgot the other thing I was going to say. So, so here I'll I'll go. Oh, no, no, no. Here's here's okay. what it is. Not to say that again, being a Christian is going to should produce certain things in you and produce a certain kind of character. We'll get come to this again and again as we re- read Willard. And in in the conversations we've had at my church around submission and submission to Christ, that's the thing. That's the question, right? And something Jeremy's brought up again in in our in our lie that the world the telos of society is a progressive movement towards liberation and democracy. We forget that the end of the story is a monarchy. <laughs> yeah. What does Paul say? We used to quote this before we started quoting the Nicene Creed at church every week. Every tribe and tongue and nation will confess. Confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. We'll get back to that later. They're all, and keep in mind, this is also something that's really important for monoculturalists or for nationalists out there. Everyone retains their difference. Every tribe and tongue and nation. He doesn't do away with it. Matter of fact, Babel is this very interesting way which Christ and God and the Spirit accommodate all of our differences to let them speak in all these tongues. It is the reversal of Babel, but it's not that we become all one language. It's that Christ, and the because of his work in the Holy Spirit, then infect every nation. We'll talk about this later with Heiser, but every one of them at the end is going to bow to Jesus. That's what we're centered on. It doesn't say then every knee, every tribe and tongue and nation will bow to 
conservatism. Every tribe, tongue, and nation will bow to communism. Every tribe, tongue, and nation will bow to inclusivism. No, every tribe, tongue, and nation bows to Jesus. That's the, that's it. It's the monarchy. Well, that's what we got. We don't, we didn't vote him in. He's there whether we want him. We'll get to this. It's news. He's there whether you want him to be or not. This is also why I'm not a universalist. But again, we confuse so many times the product, what is a consequence of the gospel with the gospel. Then we make certain tenets of that production central rather than Christ. So I'm done. I think, um, I think one of the biggest problems, intellectually speaking, in our culture is conflation. We conflate in politics, we conflate in conversation, and it goes back to, I think, breaking one of Peterson's rules. I don't remember which one it was, but be clear in what you say, right? How, is, how does he phrase it? It's um, Be precise in your speech. It's, yeah, chapter... Chapter seven. Yeah. Most people aren't. And so that leaves a lot of room for those hearing their words to conflate ideas, mis misinterpret one idea as another idea and think these two things are synonymous and the same. And so we can, we can use them together or interchangeably. And I think that's what we do with the gospel. So to phrase it maybe in a catchy kind of cheeky way, I think we conflate the fruit of the gospel with the root of the gospel. Right? And it's that conflation. That conflation happens in part because that's an easy mistake to make. And in part because these results of the gospel at times are challenged by false teachings mm -hmm. and need or, to be defended. Or wider culture. Or wider culture and need to be defended. And that's fine. But don't conflate the fruit of the gospel with the gospel itself. Because when you do that, you're just ever so slightly off course by one or two degrees. But when running a race, if you're off course by one or two degrees here, you'll be off course by miles by the end, right? You, to use the classic pastoral example. Mm -hmm. And it's important. It's important to run the race well. Insert Paul. Okay. I'm done too. Piper? Yeah. officially wrapped so we have begun the journey it's going to be a while but i hope you guys want to stick around for it as always if you'd like this please hit the subscribe button i think they changed the color it's no longer red it is white it's down there um you can email us at belfast podcast if you want to come you can hit us up on instagram at the belfast podcast um and leave a comment like Rate us on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a review, all that good stuff. Tell your friends about it. Uh, as we start this series, I hope 
that we can get more and more people introduced to what, what we have going on here. And like with everything we do, I hope you guys find it fruitful and helpful. And I thank you so much for listening.